listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. For Alan Carter, I'm Arlene Bynum, and we have a lot to talk about. It's usually the the dark days of August or the bright sunny days of August, and politics is certainly on the back burner. No way. We've got a lot happening. And one of the big stories, of course, is this new sex ed curriculum. It's been unveiled by the Ontario PCs, and for many people, this is a little bit of Back to the future. Here's Education Minister Stephen Lecce. We will be unveiling a curriculum that really makes cyber safety and security the center of what we do. We want to make sure that as young people turn online for academics, for socializing and entertainment, they've got the self-confidence and the tools to stay safe. So here we have a new so-called nude sex ed curriculum. Although, as we said, there's so many elements of this that are looking a lot like the old sex ed curriculum and this is going to replace the 2015 one introduced by Kathleen Wynne and it's not so very very different so on the one hand we can talk about the aspects of this on the other we could talk about the mannerisms of the Ford government I mean it's it's always kind of going back a little bit in so many ways we know that the premier is trying to hit the reset button and over and over we're looking at policies that are being put back that are being transferred to the way they were before or there is a little walking back so much so that the NDP reaction has to be what was the fuss all about here's Merritt Stiles he's the Ontario NDP education critic after Doug Ford wasted a year playing politics with our kids safety and well-being instead of learning about things like consent and gender identity, kids in this province lost the last year studying 20-year-old health and physical education curriculum. Mr. Ford forced children to go to the Human Rights Tribunal to fight for their rights. And let's not forget, he threatened teachers with a sex ed snitch line and forced them to launch a charter challenge. He also spent a million dollars on an online survey only to release a new curriculum that is largely unchanged from the 2015 sex ed curriculum. And for what? So he could show off to social conservatives at the expense of our kids, families, teachers, education workers, and experts who led this fight deserve credit for today's victory for student safety. I want to say uh, Andrea Horvath, myself, and the entire NDP caucus official opposition, are, we're very, very proud to stand with all of those advocates. But it should never have come to this. Doug Ford never should have played political football with children and their well-being. And I want to add, we've seen way too much of that over the last 20 years uh, with uh, both the Liberal and Conservative parties. The NDP is going to continue to review the details of the new curriculum very closely, but we are, I will say, pleased to see that concepts we fought to maintain, concepts like gender identity and sexual identity, consent and cyberbullying will remain. The NDP will also 
fight to make sure students can access the help they need when they identify mental health concerns through the curriculum. Help like guidance counselors and mental health supports, things that Mr. Ford has also cut back significantly. There we have Merritt Stiles, who is the Ontario NDP education critic. So there you go. So who won this? You know, I've, I'm on a couple of minds here. We know that this government was elected, and one of the promises they made is they were going to take another look at the 2015 sex ed curriculum, the Kathleen Wynne liberal one. And there was a lot of complaints from parents that this sex ed was happening at too young of an age, and it was a, a, too graphic. It was, it was an issue for this government. Well, now we know that there's been a little fiddling, but for the most part, it's very, very similar. So, you know, I, 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 as I said, I'm of two minds. I usually do not criticize a government when they make an amend. I like it. To me, when you stick your heels in and you're stubborn and you see the way you're going is not the way that's going to work out or what the voters want, then that is a weakness in a government. However, this is happening a lot. And I'm sure uh, within the government, they realize that. We understand that balance works, but wouldn't it be wonderful if the balance had happened right from the beginning? And so before you're redoing things over and over again, then you would figure it out and say, you know what, I'm going to get this right. So we wonder if the heart and soul of this government may realize that. And again, I mean, there's no point in going forward with something that is too controversial. On the other hand, there's been a lot of taking back. Here's what people are saying in the streets. My child is four and we talked about it already. I think the sooner the better that they introduce kids to these concepts and I just hope they do it in a respectful way. Earlier I think it's better because at least they have a foundation from from younger but um, gear graded is still fine. My child didn't really figure out his sexual identity till he was in his 20s or close to 30 and it would have because as a teenager, like, we didn't even know these things existed, so I think it's the better, the sooner the better. Sex education is something we communicate. Uh, I, I think my kids need to know about it. Um, I think the fact that they're doing it in school is, um, is pretty good. So there we have out in the streets here, and it is a new frontier here. <laughs> you got to think that the policies that are going to start coming out of the government, they're going to want to make sure that they get it right again. You know, we're always going to want to talk about what kids learn and sex in the school, and it is a very important conversation, and in many people's opinion, it should not be done without the input of parents. But it's not so much the details of this that I find interesting. What I find interesting is this search for balance that maybe would have worked better if they did it the first time. We'll go to the phones for a bit here. Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi. I was just saying to the screener, mm -hmm. maybe no political party wins this. Maybe parents win. What's the problem with a parent winning? Why has it always got to be a conservative or a liberal? You know what? Conservatives and liberals are not raising our children. The parents are. 
they gave the parents the the the, uh, the right to opt out. Some your child doesn't have to get paraded around the hallways if they decide they don't want to take sex sex ed for whatever reason. You know what? Sex education is a good thing so long as it's done right. When you got eight year olds mm -hmm. and nine year olds walking around or coming home with a pocket full of condoms, give me a freaking break. All right, Bill, uh, let me ask you, you say the parents won, but parents have different views on this. Is it the balance you like in this? Yeah, you know what? Not all parents are going to think alike. Mm -hmm. why, should that, why should it be treated, uh, you know, right across the board the same? If a one parent mm -hmm. isn't comfortable with her, their child being exposed to certain types of sex education, like anal sex and stuff like that, well, then they don't have to, they can opt out. So are you, are you happy? Do you think this policy, yeah. though, and what about my point here, Bill? I just want to ask, do you think this policy would have been better if it was balanced right from the beginning? All right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> right now. Yeah. No, right now, you've got a situation where before, parents were being chastised for trying to take their kids out of sex mm -hmm. ed class. So it's opened and up the conversation for you. And that is it's good enough. It, it, uh, from what I understand about the policy, if a parent decides they don't want their child... Yeah, there's that it. option now. So, however, a lot of it is like the original one. Bill, thank you. He says parents won. What does Russ in Brampton say? Hey, Russ? Oh, it's Les. I'm sorry. Oh, Les in Brampton. What do you say, yeah. Les? Uh, well, I don't know who's going to win on this. So I'll just tell her that... You know, being, being European, over in Europe, you don't mm -hmm. have this type of teaching and everything. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a natural thing to see, a, to see a woman's breasts or something like that. We make such a big deal out of this here in North America. But I was just saying, like, I mean, I'm just watching the highlights of these new movies come out. Everyone should just go and see Good Boys. I think the kids are going to learn something from that. I know, but what about this policy? I mean, it is a lot like the liberals. It's very, very balanced. What What do you say? Is this a sign from this government? Are you happy with it? You know what I'm not happy with? I think you have to have a specialty teacher teaching it. Like, if you got a 75-year-old mm -hmm. teacher teaching I think who's, who's doing the, the, the presentation? Who's gonna, who's gonna Just be because you're 75 doesn't mean you don't know no, anything about I, sex. And I really, really take that back. I'm really sorry. There's yeah. probably some good 75-year-olds out there that are more knowledgeable. Exactly. I mean, they, they would have more experience. Les, thank you for your call. David and Barry. David. Hi, Arlene. Thanks for taking the call. Nice to have you. Uh, I was going to say that if parents honestly think by opting their child out of any one of these educational classes mm -hmm. is going to prevent their child from learning, kids are inquisitive. The first thing that's going to happen, Bobby's going to ask Billy or Mary, hey, what mm -hmm. did you learn today in sex ed? I wasn't there. I can't go. My mom doesn't want me to go. Or my dad doesn't want me to go. They're going to learn it anyway, whether they learn it in the schoolyard, in the street gutter, <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter. Well, eventually everybody did get that information, didn't they? I mean, we're not having a population problem. No, and, and, I, and I think at the end of the day, it was, uh, uh, I mean, Ford probably felt it was something that he was mm -hmm. pressured into mm -hmm. doing. Uh, whether or not it, it was worth the millions of dollars that everyone's claiming he spent, uh, I don't know. I just think that, uh, you know, kids are going to learn it no matter what. It's better that they learn it in a proper format than in a improper format. All right. Thank you for your call.
Colleen Bynum sitting in for Alan Carter today, and we continue with more Ontario stories and changes that are coming. Doctors and patients can expect changes in how conditions are diagnosed and how they're treated. The Ontario government is planning to eliminate some coverage for some stuff that was previously covered by OHIP. And it's about a dozen medical services. They're calling them outdated and inappropriate. Just how inappropriate are they and how will they affect our health care? Brett Belchez is joining me, 640 Toronto medical expert. Brett, welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right. You know, when they say inappropriate, do we have a definition for that today? You know, it's a, it's a changing definition over time, but I think specific to this effort uh, and, you know, where they're going with this is I think where they're going is inappropriate based on new and evolving medical guidelines. So if we look at medical science and medical practice, it's something that changes all the time. And, and things that you know we thought were valuable procedures or valuable investigations maybe 20 or 30 years ago sometimes are no longer valuable, and we recognize that they don't add any benefit to somebody's health. And so it's a really important exercise, and this is something I think we should be going through on an ongoing basis versus only once in a while, to always be looking at where we're spending our healthcare dollars and making the decision on should these things remain things that we pay for? Are they things that are actually helping people's health or are they outdated treatments that we no longer should be covering? And they're all connected too. I mean, we take a look at it. It's one thing for our health and there's another thing how they tie into doctors billing and they were controversial, some of them. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's certainly, you know, some back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. you, know, it, you know, a lot of this has evolved as a result of discussions between physicians and the government. And so if you look at the history of, of you know, what we call delisting of services, so this is where we take services that were covered by OHIP and we say we're no longer going to cover them. Back in, you know, another government era, you know, a lot of the time delisting was just guided by purely financial considerations. So the government would say, you know, we're not even going to do the work to figure out is this necessary or unnecessary. We're just going to say we can't afford these services and we'll cut them off because we think they're easier to cut off than some others. So, you know, some examples, for instance, are even, you know, things like optometry visits uh, that were cut down, mm-hmm. you know, a number of years ago. More recently, you know, and this is a direction I think is mm-hmm. the right direction. This has become a collaborative discussion between the doctors and the government, where the government has said to doctors, we need to cut X dollars from the physician budget. You know, we can't afford to have unlimited increase. Let's work together to identify the services that are obsolete, and let's work together to actually make that decision that doctors can no longer bill for those services so that physicians are agreeable that these are the right choices to make. So I think the way that it's happening now is much more the way that it should be done, and I'm hopeful that the outcome will be a good one for both doctors and for patients. You know, it sounds when we when we see this, okay, you know, they're eliminating people can be up in arms, but it sounds like this is just may I say what the doctor ordered. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think anybody should be up in arms about this. You know, if your doctor is ordering a mm-hmm. test for you or ordering a treatment for you that is no longer supported by medical guidelines, it, it's better for you that this is something that the that the doctor cannot order or cannot be billing for mm-hmm. anymore. It's better for you that this is being taken into account, this evolution of practice, and that your doctor is forced to order a better treatment. You know, one of the examples of, of changes, you know, that's being made is, 
you know, in terms of the diagnosis of sinus infections and sinusitis. So, it, you know, it's well understood in medical literature that the only test that's really of any value there is a CT scan. And some of the older tests like ultrasounds and x-rays that were used really aren't that helpful. And so the government is starting to move towards a place where they say, we're not going to fund those kinds of investigations mm-hmm. because they don't properly diagnose this. So you as a patient should never be up in arms that your doctor's not able to order those tests anymore for sinus infections because they wouldn't have been accurate for you anyways. Okay, let me ask you, why are they using them then? What's the incentive for them to go to these medical services that are outdated? I think, you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing that, you know, we have a big physician population. I think there's something on the order of, you know, I may be wrong. I think it's about 20,000 or so doctors in Ontario, and I may be off by a little bit, but all of those doctors were educated at different times. And, you know, it may have been taught in medical school, you know, 20 or 30 years ago that those were great tests because we didn't have anything else. And, you know, we really work hard to update the medical knowledge mm-hmm. of all the providers. And, and as part of being a doctor, there's something called continuing medical education, where mm-hmm. you continually update your practice to reflect the latest guidelines. But the reality is that it's very hard for all physicians to stay up to date on all things. So there may be some physicians that were trained in another era where they just weren't aware of that practice change. So this is a good thing to actually force them to be made aware of those practice changes through this change in billing and through this change in funding. It is. You know, you know, what amazes me is this wasn't done before. I mean, you know, clearly, as you're explaining it, there could be a demographic of doctors who are stuck a little bit in the past here. Yeah, I think that this is something that that is is really a symptom of how we negotiate physician fees and how we negotiate what's covered and what isn't covered. And unfortunately, the way the pro the way the process works right now is every four years or so, the government and the doctors get together and they renegotiate what the fees are for all the different services. And a lot of the time, uh, we actually don't discuss should those services still be funded. You know, it's really an intense negotiation on, you know, is there going to be a raise or not a raise, and how are we going to actually pay you for the things you already do? And and so now we're taking a more thoughtful approach this time around to say we're actually going to look at all those different services and figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad. But I think, you know, even beyond that, I don't think that this should be an every four-year process. I think that there needs to be an ongoing dialogue, you know, at least once a year between the medical profession and the government to say which of the services that we've chosen to cover are still currently recommended. I don't think that what we've done in the past makes any sense, you know, given the pace of change in medical guidelines, given the pace of change in medical technology, you know, it might have made sense 40 or 50 years ago for us to have these discussions, you know, every four Mm -hmm. years or every eight years. In this day and age, this is something that we have to be doing on an ongoing basis, much more close to a live mechanism. Okay, I want to ask you, you know, what modern technology has made annual blood screening tests not necessarily? I don't get that. So in this case, I wouldn't say it's modern technology. It's more modern research. So, Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, we used to think the more information, the better. And before we had lots of data to look at lots of patients over long periods of time, we thought, you know, how could it possibly not be good for you as a patient that we go and do an annual screen on your blood every year? And what we found out is when now we have the data to look at, you know, millions of patients over many years, what we can see is that those patients that get those annual screens, and I'm not talking about blood testing that's in response to you having a problem, I'm just talking about an annual screen for no purpose other than screening. And what we found is that those people who get that annual screening for no purpose, who have no symptoms, don't have any better outcomes than those people who 
don't get that screening. So we're doing a lot of testing that's very expensive and it's not making people any healthier. And in fact, a lot of the time what happens is we uncover things in that screening that leads to unnecessary extra testing where we can actually cause harm because sometimes we'll see something in the blood that that actually may just be a normal variant that we end up doing a lot of extra testing and we do a lot of potential procedures that can actually harm people with side effects and a lot of it results in no change in care or outcome. And so when we look at all of the recommendations now, we say maybe it's better that we actually don't do that screening at all because we're not making people healthier and we're wasting a lot of money doing it. All right. You know, we want to trust this, but I got to tell you, you know, I talked to a doctor once who said that there was a friend who died of lung cancer. And she said when she was a GP that she used to have regular chest X-rays and they went away because they were deemed unnecessary. And she believes that that could be a lifesaver. So we want to trust in this. However, you know, are we really at a point where more information is not necessarily helpful? Well, I think, you know, to to push back on that point in the medical profession and and making decisions medically, we can never make decisions based on a sample size of one person. So there's always going to be the story of one person. I know, but she's saying from her practice, she was a doctor. You know, I'm saying it from one. She's not. So, so what we do when we do the greater medical research, so, you know, again, this is not one doctor's experience from their practice. And again, it, it, I would push her back to say, you know, if you look at all of the patients that you have done those screening chest x-rays on, let's see whether or not you did mm-hmm. any good and let's see whether maybe you caused more harm. Because, you know, the counterpoint to that is when we just do screening chest x-rays on everybody, in a lot of people mm-hmm. when we do chest x-rays, we find little abnormalities. And most yeah. of the time those abnormalities are nothing to worry about. But, but the it causes grief. Well, not only grief, but we have to investigate mm-hmm. them further. So now, now, now we do a CT scan, and if we see something still funny, we do a biopsy. And a biopsy can actually be a deadly procedure when we biopsy the lung. So when we look at actually studies of you know millions of patients and regular sampling chest X-rays just to screen people, what we find is we're actually harming more people than we're helping. So when we go down that path of all the unnecessary investigations, the CT scans, the biopsies, there are people that are being harmed to a great degree by unnecessary mm-hmm. testing that results from that, far more are being harmed than we're actually helping. So, you know, the guidelines now say we should do screening, but only if you're in an at-risk population, only if you have specific symptoms that indicate that you are the person that should be getting the screening. And when we go down that path, then we start to see actually we're helping more people than we're harming. All right, Brett, final question. I just want to ask you, how much money is this going to save? Well, you know, you know, that's a question mark. We don't know right now. You know, if you look at, at, you know, physician billing as as part of what the government spends on healthcare right now, it's about twenty percent. You know, we're many, many billions of dollars. So it doesn't take a lot of percentage savings to save a lot of money. So even if you know we can somehow save something that's even five percent of physician billing, that's a huge amount of money that could potentially fund a whole new hospital or a whole new set of care for other patients that need it. So, so you know, we don't know the exact number, but every bit of savings is very helpful when we're looking at such huge numbers. All right, Brett Belchez, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. You have a great day, Brett. My pleasure. You too. Brett is 640 Toronto's medical expert. We're going to take a break. When we return, we're going to find out this afternoon if the Ethics Committee is going to hear from the Ethics Commissioner, SNC Lavalin. We're going to test the waters and see whether or not that is a go right after this. I'm Arlene Bynum for Alan Carter. This is Global News 640 Toronto.
time for the Liberals on the Ethics Committee to make a stand. Do what is right and what Canadians expect you to do. We will learn today whether or not the scandal and corruption is limited to just the Liberal Party's leader in the form of Justin Trudeau, or whether or not this rot has infected the entire Liberal caucus and the entire Liberal Party. There we go. That is the Conservative leader, Andrew Scheer, SNC-Lavalin. It hit like a bomb, and now the opposition party's pushing to have the Ethics Committee hear from the Ethics Commissioner. Will they do it? And will Canadians care about it? Or is this, as they say in politics, baked in? Joining me, Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations. Hi, Bob. How are you? Hi, Arlene. All right, Bob, what do you say? Is this going to be a go or are the liberals ready to just move on and they don't want any more information? Well, I think Canadians are ready to move on more than the liberals are uh, ready to move on. But I think both certainly are. I think we're going to have an election October 21st. I think most Canadians, uh, the vast, vast majority have made their mind up on this issue, whether they agree or disagree with the prime minister and how that's going to influence their vote. Uh, This committee would do... Nothing more than be grandstanding. Zero would get accomplished. This is not a period of time when you're just on the absolute eve of uh, an election where you're going to get results. It'll be all about Ottawa hot air. You know, the previous government would never consider doing something like this uh, during this time of the political cycle. And uh, I would expect that the Liberals would say no to this, too, as well. And uh, to be fair, if the Liberals were in opposition, they sure would be pushing. This is politics, pure and simple. 100%. That's my point. This is all about politics. It's not about good public policy. And it's not the type of of thing that, uh, you know, uh, um, we really need at this point in the process. I want to ask you, Bob, I mean, the report was damning towards the prime minister and is, you know, there's been some defense of it. Were you surprised by the detail that we got? No, I wasn't surprised. I mean, uh, obviously, the commissioner had an opportunity to look into it. Uh, He's issued his report. It's his opinion on it. Uh, Prime Minister took responsibility for it. He disagrees with it, obviously, um, in, a, in a number of areas. And by the way, so do a number of other pretty uh, distinguished jurists and others. But I think it showed that we really do need to take a look at how we do some business. And there is some coziness in Ottawa, uh, coziness with the corporate sector, coziness with former bureaucrats, uh, and people getting ahead of themselves politically a little. I don't think, I don't think there's corruption or things... All right, we lost you there, Bob, for a minute. We're going to get you back. Are you are you with us? Sorry about that. Right. I think that uh, sorry about that. My uh, my apologies. No I, I don't think there's corruption or things of that nature, uh, but uh, certainly it could have been handled in a better fashion, and I think that's fair criticism. You know, the pressure, does it change the story on Jody Wilson-Raybould? You and I have talked about it. There was a, there was a narrative going around that she was difficult, and there was some messaging out there. Here, we see that Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't even really know what was happening behind the scenes. Does it change the public's view of her? Well, you know, I think that there's two views of her in the public. One is a view that, you know, she's a bit of a heroine and she's taken on the establishment here and, you know, uh, was was pushing for a certain outcome. 
I think there's another view that maybe she wasn't the best attorney general on the planet and that uh, there are other things that you should take into consideration and that also um, it's not bad to get a second uh you know, a second view on some of the things that you're doing. So again, but you the know, view I, was already what we learned in that report, which was one of the surprising parts. Is it wasn't a mystery to those who suggested she get a second view. They knew what she was going to be told. Yeah, and that's my that's the point I'm making about coziness in Ottawa. Mm. I personally don't believe that former clerks of the Privy Council should be allowed to lobby government officials. I do not believe that former Supreme Court justices mm-hmm. of, 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 of the, you know, of, this, of, of Canada ought to be allowed to lobby government officials. I think they've, they have too much power, they have too, they've accumulated too much power, and I think it, it creates a power imbalance in Ottawa, and I don't think that's healthy for the system. Let me ask you, we've done a lot of com- we've got a lot of observations here as Canada as we watch what's happening in the United States. Uh, the president has said he could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and his base wouldn't go away. Are we seeing that? Is there a baked in real hardcore partisanship even here in Canada? Well, I think there is to a certain extent. I think there's a big chunk of the conservative vote that does not like the prime minister. I'll say that, and that's the charitable way of putting it. Uh, and I think that there's a, a big chunk of, uh, of progressive or liberal voters uh, that are happy with his performance, think he's done a good job, and merits re-election. So, you know, uh, the, the, two do, the two may never meet eye to eye, but there are those two two camps. There are a group of Canadians in the middle, which I think politicians are focused on, who uh, maybe are uh, maybe uh, less uh, strident than uh, than either of those two camps are. All right, Bob, thank you for joining us. You have a great day. Thank you, Arlene. All right, Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations. We're going to take a break. When we return, what do you say here? One of the things that Andrew Sheeran, we'll play the clip when we come back, he believes he's asking for... MPs to put country over party. We're kind of watching that in the United States. Is that impossible now? I mean, is the reaction to SNC-Lavalin, is it based on partisan views, hardcore? Do we not change our mind about things? Because we've had three polls come out, and so far it looks like a dead heat. It looks like that this latest SNC affair may not be changing the polls that may already be baked in. Why do you think that is the case? We'll go to the phones right after this. I'm Arlene Bonham for Alan Carter. This is Global News Radio 640 Toronto. SNC Lavalin grabbing the headlines, and this is the second rodeo for SNC Lavalin. And boy, it was it was quite surprising to me. You know, you read all those details, and I got to say, I agreed with somebody who said on on Twitter that even if you're going, you know who you're going to vote for. If you're going to vote liberal, and and that's the way it is, you got to read those details. It is important. And I'm wondering here if we're at a moment, you know, is this about partisanship? 
Is that how people are seeing it and weighing in? And have people put partisanship over country? We ask this when we look in the United States and we say, you know, what are they doing and how can that happen? Is it happening here? Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. I'm making this announcement today, this appeal to those Liberal members uh, to do what other members of other committees, and indeed this very same committee, failed to do before, and that is allow this investigation to proceed. So, country over party, 416-870-6400, star 640 on cell. You know, are we entering a new kind of politics here where we don't care about the ethics? We don't care about the the whole point of it the rule of law all those things is it just are we heading into a future here where you're going to turn a blind eye if it's your party and if it isn't your party all of a sudden it is greatly important and there and, and the reason i think it's important to talk about this is These are not small things. These are things, as we talk about the rule of law, these are not things where partisanship doesn't really matter. And is this something that is happening more and more? Do you always pick party? Or do you think you still have it to go country over party? Michael, downtown. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Good. What do you think here, Michael? Is this, you know, we've had three polls, I think, now that show there hasn't been much difference after this. And this was one heck of a report. Well, you know what? I'm not surprised. I mean, this is this is this is common element from the Liberal Party. I mean, look what happened with the with the with the gas plant scam. I was directly involved in that. I was a constructor on a, a few of them. And I mean, we got handed the short end of the stick. And the, you know, the Liberals left us all high and dry. Well, you know, and said that it was, you know, whatever the reasons were, they had their reasons. But now, the truth is coming out that, you know, when it's their turn to uh, to, wear, to wear the big boy hat, you know, they do it good. But when it's time to fess up and say, hey, you know, we screwed up, we made a couple mistakes here and there, and yes, this, this doesn't smell good, they just can't seem to but do But do it. you do that, Michael? This is the interesting part. Do you do that? Or do you say, no. okay, you know, it doesn't sound like you like the liberals much. So do you just say, no. oh, I'm not budging? Or, or you can take a look. I, can. I mean, can All you right. imagine if you lived your... Uh, sorry, to, sorry to interrupt, but can you imagine if that's how you spend your time at home with your significant other? I mean, that's the best way to relate this. Uh, you know, a regular civil servant uh, uh, with politicians, there should be like a family deal here in Canada. I remember when I first came here, the politicians you know, didn't have much in integrity, but then either. But at least. Well, what do you mean a family? How does that how does that explain what I'm trying to get to here? Is are people turning a blind eye because they're just so rabidly partisan? Exactly, and it's like, it goes back to that whole family. You know, we can't hear no evil, see no evil, smell no evil, as they say. You know, the worst part about this whole thing is that there's no adults in the room. I mean, Sheer stood up and said yes. You know, he's going after them full throttle, trying to get him to uh, get this thing. Uh, this report out and, and investigate it further. And these guys are just sticking their head in the sand and, you know, try to making us all look like we're stupid or something. I mean, it's come on, you know. All right. Final question, Michael. Is this are we seeing a Trump effect here happening you know in what? the United States? 
I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you something. Uh, I was just down in Michigan about a month ago, and their economy is absolutely booming over there. You can't find people everywhere. I know we're not talking about the economy. I'm not no, talking no. about Michael. I'm asking you if we're witnessing a hardcore partisanship there. Yes, 110 percent, we are. All right, Michael. Thank you for your. Thank you. Concise answer. We appreciate it. All right. I, I want to switch to something that is better news. We've often, and I know certainly on talk radio, it is a big topic. When we look at something awful that happened in society, we've often said, do people come forward? I know there was a big conversation not so long ago in this city, whether or not there were certain neighborhoods who didn't want to talk to the police, who didn't come out and help. They were too frightened. And there was a debate about whether they should or whether they shouldn't. And we all asked ourselves, if I saw somebody who was in trouble, would I step up? Well, there is a new study And it shows, yes, they do way, way more than we think that victims of aggressive public disputes do get help. So our our whole idea that people run and we'd often say, what's happening in this world may need a little bit of a tweaking here. You know, how does it work? Here is Marie Rosencrantz. Global News spoke with Marie Rosencrantz Lingard. She's the researcher. And this is all from the University of Copenhagen. And she explains how it works. In nine out of 10 situations, people were trying to de-escalate the conflict. They were pushing themselves between the conflict parties, um, trying to distract them, sometimes, you know, touching them. Um, yeah, so trying to prevent that the situation will escalate. And and here we have it as well. I mean, it's a it it's a previous psychological theory. People believed before that you were less likely to help a stranger if other people around. It didn't make sense. But this researcher says they have more information. We were quite surprised because we were obviously also, you know, brought up with this myth about passive bystanders in public. Um, so we were also thinking, you know, yeah, probably it's too too risky. Uh, people won't bother with each other. You know, there's all this also sociological literature showing that in urban context, people are, you know, reluctant to in, in, engage with each other. So we were surprised, yeah, that the f- frequency was so high. Um, we were also surprised that it was so similar in these three different countries. So there we have it. Does this surprise you? Have you witnessed this? Because it was always really kind of a black mark on society, wasn't it? People around, nobody steps up, especially in these times. We had this vision that years ago that something people with honor would do. And now we find out we may have had it wrong. What's your experience? Would you step up? Because before, we really were under the impression that people were too frightened. 416-870-6400, star 640 on your cell. And, And this is great news for me. It challenges the view that intervention is not something that people want to do. And it's one thing when you read about it. It's another thing when you do it. And it is very, very 
difficult for many people and often surprised. You know, I know somebody who was walking in, I, I think, to a Canadian tire or something and saw this speeding car come out and hit um, a parked car, a mother and her two kids. The car slammed on the brakes and the person got out. And this friend of mine started to run and chase this person, probably not very wisely, down a ravine. You know, the city has ravines. Down a ravine, through a path, and the the guy who crashed the car kept looking over his shoulder. And later on, the police gave him a citation. And they said, wow, that was over and beyond the call of duty. But when you tell the story, there are many people who say, not now. You know, we talk about gun violence in this city. Does it hold people back? But if this study is true, it makes us feel better. Paul in Toronto. Hi, Paul. Hi there. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Does this ring true for you? Um, it does. I mean, uh, the example that I wanted to give was mm-hmm. that, uh, well, I'm 40 now, but about uh, 20 years ago, I was with uh, three of my guy friends leaving government nightclubs. We were driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as we got around to the Toronto Star building, we saw uh, a guy uh, throwing a young lady around. Uh, we all immediately jumped out, uh, mm-hmm. chased them down, and held them until the cops came. Um, and uh, Fantino was nice enough to commend us for that at a ceremony and whatnot. But the motivation, I felt, was not really about doing the honorable thing. I think it was just automatic. You see someone in need. Yeah, and I think, I think you've nailed it, Paul. Thank you for your call, because yours was a good one. It, it, I, I do think it's automatic. I think you've either got it or you don't. And you either do it without thinking, and any time I have, I didn't have to think very much about it.